0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Wanda M. Morris, author of the new novel All Her Little Secrets. Wanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lee. So first off, can we find out a little bit about you? Obviously, you are an author, but you're also an attorney. Uh, Can you give me a little background on what your career has been like and what brought you to write your first novel?
1: Oh, wow. Sure. So, gosh, I am a graduate of Case Western Reserve University Law School, as well as the undergraduate program. Um, I have an accounting degree and uh, I graduated uh, from undergrad, worked for a couple years as an accountant. Uh, realized that that was not my calling. And um, because I always loved to read, uh, I love to write and lawyers do a lot of both of those things. So um, I went to law school and uh, I graduated from law school, worked for a couple years at a law firm and then went in-house. And I um, Never really turned back. uh, The better part of my career was spent um, working in-house inside um, corporate uh, legal departments. I have always enjoyed, like I said, writing ever since I was a young girl. And, you know, never really conceived of becoming a writer just because I was the youngest of seven kids. So I was really encouraged to get, you know, quote unquote, a real job. So that's why I, I went on to law school, but I never lost that yearning to create stories. So, gosh, 13 years ago, yeah, it was 2008, I believe, I um, finally said, you know, I had this character rambling around in my head and I, I think I'm gonna, you know, just at least put some pen to paper and see what happens. and I wrote uh, the first draft of what is now um, All Her Little Secrets. I wrote probably about 70% of the book. I didn't um, have an ending to the book. And um, then I put it away because I convinced myself that um, nobody was going to want to read a book about, you know, a middle-aged Black woman who, you know, worked with really awful people who did really awful things. And I also think that I just didn't think my writing was good enough. Um, So I put it away and um, for like seven years, uh, about six years ago, I picked it back up because I'd had some health issues. And once I got through them, I said, you know what, I'm going to start doing more of those things that I enjoy. And writing has always been that. So I picked the manuscript up and I looked at it and it was really, really bad. So I thought, okay, um, that's okay. Cause I can make what's bad better. So I set about taking courses, uh, online courses, workshops. I participated in workshops and, and things like that um, just so that I could learn the actual craft of writing. Cause I had this story in my head It just didn't translate very well when I put it on paper. So I did that. And, um, you know, once I did write an ending, I love these characters so much and I love the story so much. And I said about like, maybe I could get it published. Um, And that's when I started to look for an agent and um, attempt to get traditionally published. And I came to this book. Often I'm approached by
0: publishers or authors who have a book uh, and, and listener, if you're one of those people, books at abajournal.com, uh, feel free to submit. But I came to this one from seeing a uh, promotion from audible.com for an audiobook, And I was intrigued by the cover. I was intrigued by the description and the fact that the author was an attorney. So I, you know, used my credit that month to download all her little secrets and as i told you right before we started recording i so enjoyed the audiobook and was so gripped by it but at some point in time i was like i cannot consume this book fast enough if i only listen to it i need to download the ebook and find out right now what happens to elise and everyone in the book (laughs) <laughs> so just you know, fair warning if you decide uh, the audiobook is is wonderful. Great narrator, uh, but you may find yourself just needing to get your hands on the on the physical copy or electronic copy just to find out what happens. So let's talk about Elise and her world. You know, you introduce us to Elise on a morning. I don't think this is a spoiler because you find it out <laughs> on the first chapter. It's on page two, so I think you can share, how do we meet Elise? What, what's happening in this morning at her office?
1: Sure, so uh, Elise Littlejohn, who is the protagonist of the book, is a woman who um, seemingly has it all. She has this well-paying job in Midtown Atlanta, uh, working as an in-house attorney for uh, a family owned company. And uh, she has this great group of friends. And uh, one morning, she goes to work um, for a meeting with her boss, um, who, again, this is no spoiler because it's on page two. He also happens to be um, her married lover. And um, she goes up to the executive suite because he is the general counsel. And she reports to him. And she finds him dead of a gunshot. And she does what many people consider the unthinkable. She actually uh, walks away without calling the authorities. And she does that because she is a really complicated lady with a really dark um, cache of secrets. And um, interestingly enough, the company promotes her almost immediately to replace her dead boss and lover. Um, and so she then becomes the general counsel um, for the company. And once she enters the executive suite, she immediately starts to realize that something is very, very wrong. Something is off there. Along with this, simultaneously with this, the police begin to investigate because what originally appeared to be a suicide, of her boss is actually a murder. And now people are gossiping, she's got his job, what exactly is going on? Once she uncovers um, some very shady things going on in the company, she is then placed in this really impossible dilemma um, that is both ethical and moral. Um, And so she has to race to save her brother and stop a really sinister conspiracy.
0: And readers, I am going to spare you from spoilers. Uh, However, we do have to talk more about the story. One of the things I found so masterful is something important to know about the executive suite that Elise is walking into is it is incredibly white, Mm -hmm. uh, incredibly male. And she has these encounters, which I think probably many black women attorneys in this area would experience these microaggressions or sometimes you know, there's nothing micro about it. but I'm thinking of Elise attending an executives party and she's experiencing these microaggressions and there's this undercurrent. And what's what works so well, is that you know that there's a murder mystery happening, so you have that level of fear for Elise, but she is also experiencing something that real attorneys, real Black women attorneys do experience in corporate life as well. So that threat, uh, you you know you're an illegal thriller, so there's going to be that level of threat, but you understand these microaggressions as the real threat that they are too. Did it take you a long time to map out exactly what was said? You know, do any of those reflect your experiences or experiences of friends of yours? I think that that was the scene at which I was, I just wanted
1: to yell,
0: you're in danger.
1: (laughs) Get out, run. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yeah, so it's interesting because I was once asked did you um, set out to write about all these things like the microaggressions and the race discrimination and the, the you know, misogyny and the sex discrimination? Was that your intent? And I said, you know, actually, I set out to write the story of a black woman working in corporate America in the higher echelons of the company and just trying to live her life out every day in America. And what you get is what you see in this book. I can't say that it's every um, black woman or black and brown woman's experience, but I think that there are a lot of things in the book that resonate not only with black and brown women in corporate America, but I think women um, in general, um, you know, that whole good old boys, uh, you know, predominantly white male space where you have the mansplainers and, you know, those things I think resonate um, with all women. And, um, you know, of course, the things that Elise experiences, um, some of them um, were in fact based on you know, lived experiences that I've had in corporate America. And, you know, sadly, it still happens today. Um, Despite the fact that a city like Atlanta is, you know, greater than 50% Black um, in population, there's still um, very few uh, Black women in the executive suites of uh, Fortune 500 companies. And so I think that there's still a lot of work to do around, um, you know, issues of race and you know equality um, and inclusion in the executive suite. And so I, of course, you know, the book is is fiction, and so um, you know, there's some parts of the story that you know are fictitious. But nonetheless, I think they still ring true for a lot of people because um, there's still a lot of work to do uh, when it comes to um, equity and inclusion in these spaces. And
0: what's so interesting is that, you know, as a reader, I'm trying to filter out, okay, you know, what in this behavior is meant as an explicit threat because you are involved in this conspiracy side character, and what are you doing just because of your own racism, whether you're cognizant of it or not. Uh, anyway, it, it, it really adds an element to the story, but again, it just, it just builds as a reader your fear for Elise. Uh, and we've got the corporate arena that we're dealing with. We have then both glimpses into Elise's personal life, although I, by the end of the book, I wanted so much more about some of this, these side characters like her, her friends, the woman who truly took care of her and her her little brother, a woman named Vera, who we find out has a complicated backstory of her own, which we get a glimpse at. And so you get her current personal life. And then you have the flashbacks to her childhood uh, and what contributed to the trauma that I think really comes through for a reader in seeing Elise today. You know, one of the interesting things as a reader is you're introduced to this woman. Nothing about what you're you're told or perceive about her makes you think that she wouldn't be qualified to take over as GC for this company. Yet she herself seems internally to feel kind of stuck in the slower position. She, she very much, you know, she's not sure she wants to take over that GC job. And obviously, I didn't want her to because, again, I was saying, danger, danger. But at the same time, she <laughs> there's no reason why she wouldn't be up to this job. There's just this, you know, do you see it as kind of a a trauma response that she is having? What do you think makes her so reluctant, aside from the fact that she just walked into this office and saw her boss and lover shot dead, uh, (laughs) would make her hesitate to step into the role? You're,
1: You're absolutely right that she is more than competent And qualified to take over this role. In fact, becoming a GC had always been her dream. And I think she makes a reference to that very early on in the book, where she says, you know, by now I should have been, you know, the GC and, you know, had this, that, or the other. And, you know, for a number of reasons, some of which are decisions and, um, mistakes of her own making, she comes into um, this role um, currently inside this corporation that she's working in. But I think her hesitancy was born out of um, some of, like you said, her trauma and just some of that doubt about, do I want to be a GC for an organization that looks like this one, because the organization itself is having some issues. And I, again, I don't want to to spoil the the book for any readers out there, but the organization is having its own um, set of issues and, and they're kind of at a crisis point too.
0: And I don't think it'd be a spoiler to tell readers that, you know, towards the, the beginning of the book, when she's coming to the office, you see that this specific company is facing street protesters talking about how white and exclusive this company has been when it comes to hiring and discriminatory practices.
1: Exactly. And so she has some doubts around that as well. Um, You know, she kind of as she's driving into the parking lot, she kind of wonders like, gosh, you know, am I, you know, working for a corporation and what would these people think if they knew that, you know, I was taking money from this organization that has these issues around um, diversity and and equity and inclusion. And so she's got all of that. um, Like like we both said at the top of this conversation, there's a lot of complications here and that is just one of them. But She um, reluctantly takes it and, you know, who among us hasn't, you know, been in a situation and your gut is telling you, don't do that, maybe not. And you still say, well, you know what, maybe I will go on and do it. Because in doing it, she actually thinks, okay, they've got these issues around diversity and inclusion, Maybe my being in this space, in this executive suite, I can drive initiatives and I can help them, you know, rectify this problem. Whether that's naive of her to think, um, I think we all think, you know, maybe I can help. So she says, if they do have someone in the executive suite who has the power to make some decisions, maybe we can make this problem better. (laughs) Yeah, that,
0: I, don't think, I don't think my listeners are going to be too shocked to hear that. It doesn't go as planned. Uh, I thought that the writing surrounding Elise's family and chosen family was just so gripping. And I was interested to hear you say you're the youngest of seven. Elise is actually the older sister of her brother, Sam, Sammy. And, you know, much like I think any family relationship where there has been you know, perhaps hardship and abuse that one sibling found an escape from at the cost of leaving behind the other sibling. You know, that's that's a fraught relationship. And there's so much love and so much guilt and feelings of, you know, who who owes what and but I thought the way you wrote the relationship between Elise and Sammy was just really evocative of of a real relationship. I don't know if you want to expand on that, but as a reader, that's certainly something that struck me.
1: Yeah, that relationship, I think, was really, really kind of part and parcel of the crux of who she was, too. I mean, she was someone who was always fighting for Sammy. um, And... You know, my hope is that you could tell she loved him deeply and, you know, so much so that she devises a plan to get them both out of, you know, this horrendous situation, Um, even as a a 14-year-old girl. I think she was always a hero. She just didn't know she was a hero um, until much later in the book. And, you know, a 14-year-old girl who says... You know, I will not repeat the cycle of poverty um, that, you know, I come out of. And I'm going to try and save my brother, too, is definitely a hero in my book. And the relationship, you know, I, I tried to make it like a real relationship where, you know, you, you bicker as, you know, siblings, but you still love each other deeply. And, you know, there's nothing you wouldn't do for one another. And that's the way she is. The book kind of opens with them bickering over money uh, of all things. Um, but you come to see very shortly after that, that she loves her brother deeply and, you know, she'll do whatever she needs to do um, to save him, to protect him. Uh, So yeah, that was a really important relationship for her character, as well as her relationship with um, Vera, who you alluded to um, earlier. She, Vera serves as um, a sort of mother figure to both she and Sammy, because their mother obviously had lots of issues and and one of the things I try to tell people when I talk about this book is that, you know, Elise comes out of this, you know, really bleak situation. And I didn't put, you know, all this trauma in her background just for trauma's sake. But it was there to show um, resilience that um, despite um, these bleak circumstances that they were both raised in, Um, that she was just resilient. She, you know, she gets knocked down, she gets up again, and she continues to fight. And so I hope that that comes through in the story. You know, I I have often said, despite the fact um, that the body, you know, notwithstanding the body count in this book, it really is a book about family and love and loss and resilience. Um, it just happens to be a little murder and mayhem, too. <laughs> There's some of that. But I, I do think,
0: you know, if at the beginning of the book you thought to yourself, why would your response to seeing a man shot dead be to close the door and walk away? You end up finding out how strongly Elise has compartmentalized her life. Another character who we meet and who I love to find out more about if you write a follow up, and I I hope you do, uh, is the character of Grace, who has been a, a close friend, a dear friend since their college days. And yet you find out, despite Elise's deep connection with Grace, Grace doesn't know about Sammy. Grace doesn't know about Elise's family background. Elise has shut that door. Even though Sammy's still in her life, she just keeps those spheres completely separate. Uh, and yeah, I like I said, I think that you come to figure out, oh, that this is why she has reacted to certain events in a certain way. I just think that there's a very good through line. Uh, often when I read legal thrillers, there'll be kind of a curveball, and I'd be like, I get why this had to happen. For the plot but it doesn't make sense characterization wise but for me the characterization made sense the whole way through so i don't know if that was all the workshops you attended or what but it
1: (laughs) you know it's interesting because you know as as we've alluded to i don't know if we said it specifically but the story is told in dual timelines And so you see Elise as a 14-year-old girl. Um, In the opening pages, she's actually um, leaving this small town where she was raised to go off to this elite boarding school. And then the other part of the story is told um, with her as a working adult. And interestingly enough, I did a workshop years and years ago, and the uh, workshop leader said, Never write your stories in dual timelines because people are going to love one timeline and hate the other, so you don't want to do that and so, for years, I resisted writing in dual timelines because of you know I'm listening to you know this guy who didn't know the story that I was trying to tell anyway, but nonetheless, I listened to him, but I kept getting rejected when I was trying to find an agent. I got tons of rejection, Lee. I mean, like I could wallpaper a bathroom with all the rejection that I got. But um, one of the things that I heard consistently was that people did not understand who Elise was. Like like you just said, who finds a body, particularly a body of someone that she knows she works with, she has this relationship with, and then she walks away. But I always knew in my head who she was. And so for me, I finally threw out that workshop advice and I said, you know, I gotta open up her backstory because people need to understand how she came to be and why she compartmentalizes her life the way she does. And it was only when I opened up our backstory and told the story in a dual timeline that I started to get interest from agents.
0: Speaking of characters from the alternate timeline, so there are a few side characters that are introduced in the course of this book that I immediately feel like, oh, I know exactly what kind of person this is. I know who this person is. This person feels real to me. I recognize in them the kind of human that is out there in the world. And for me, uh, two characters that we saw very briefly, but felt very real to me in that moment were Uncle Benson and Aunt Myrtle. Uh, and Uncle Benson is an attorney, a black attorney who comes back to Georgia. I believe it's he's still in Georgia, correct? North Carolina. Oh, he was in North Carolina. And he practices law. And the majority of his clients are... Um, other Black North Carolinians because he was iced out uh, of many opportunities uh, as an attorney. But I I did feel like I knew him and you understand why Elise saw him and realized that this was a possibility for herself to become an attorney and went on to law school. Was there anyone in your life who functioned like that? Or, Or is this just a relationship
1: that you came up with uh, as as an author? No, I have known um, some very, very wonderful attorneys who graduated some at the top of their law school classes um, but graduated in, you know, the late 50s, the 60s where these silk stocking law firms would not hire lawyers, no matter, you know, what your grade point average was, no matter where you went to school, if you were Black. And many of them um, set up their practices, set up their law practices, and worked at places like the post office at night because they still had families to feed and a roof to keep over their head, but then went on to have really successful careers despite the obstacles that were placed in front of them. And I, I love that you mentioned Uncle Benson, um, because I know that, you know, there are a lot of characters in this book, but he is one that shines brightly to show kind of the arc of, you know, the legal profession. And, you know, I was writing a story about race relations. And so if we're going to talk about race relations, particularly in the legal profession, then let's talk about all of it. And people like um, Uncle Benson were part and parcel of that. And But for um, attorneys like him who, you know, provided services to people in uh, the Black community, where else could we go? And, yeah, so um, he is kind of an amalgam of attorneys that, you know, I've known, friends that, you know, uh, their parents had to, to start um, their legal practices this way,
0: yeah. So I'm going to ask you the question that I think a lot of people, after finishing this book, will ask you. Again, no spoilers, but at the end of this book, your first book, it feels like Elise is in such a different place than at the start of the book. Again, pretty natural for a novel. That is what most novels do but there is a whole range of possibilities now that i think are not only open to her because i think they would have been open to her but that she is now open to. so do you see yourself coming back to elise as a character or do you think you'll have another writing project but you'll explore, you know, a different different set of characters? what are your plans after
1: having you know just sold your first book? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I love Elise. I love the way the book ends. And I could very well see returning back to um, to her as, uh, you know, a character in another project. My my next book, you know, unfortunately for people who love her, will not explore um, Elise's story but it is another thriller. It does involve um, black women. And you know i've I've said before that I enjoyed legal thrillers. Um, I loved writing this book, but I didn't set out to write legal thrillers. I want to write women's stories. I want to write those stories about how women, Um, persevere and overcome despite being put into some really tough circumstances. And so for my next book that I'm just finishing up um, revisions on now, as a matter of fact, I got to get them to my editor by January 3rd. I am finishing up a project that actually explores the Voting Rights Act of 1964 And again, it's a thriller. It's about um, two uh, black sisters who become embroiled in the murder of a white man in the Jim Crow south of Mississippi in 1964. And they take off running before the police can find them. One heads north, one winds up in a small town in Georgia but what they don't realize is that there is someone um, from Mississippi who knows what happened and is hot on their trail with a very unique motive for finding them. Oh, well, I I can't wait. So I'm
0: sorry, you may have to say no to some Christmas get together so that you can make that January 3rd deadline. But uh, <laughs> as, as a reader, I'm excited. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, you, this book was in process for so many years. It was a dream for so long. And this is not the book release you probably pictured having. What has it been like to be releasing a book during the COVID era where you, you know, you're very restricted when it comes to in-person events. You can't tour as much as you like. You know, it's just, it's in many ways harder to, get your book in front of people's eyes. And and I know I've talked to many of my my friends and colleagues who've had a hard time sitting down to concentrate to read for pleasure. And you know, there's there's this the difficulties of this era that you're
1: launching this book into. What what's that been like for you? You know, it it is still very surreal because when you have held onto a dream for so long, and then it unfolds in the way that this book has, it has still been an amazing process. I mean, it's been reviewed in the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly and Marie Claire and Essence and, you know, the list goes on. And So I am so, so grateful for this journey. I do wish that I could get out and meet with readers more and interact. Um, but, you know, such that it is, I am still so grateful for this journey. I'm still so grateful that the book has resonated with people, um, as well as it has. I, it's so funny. I, um, my husband called me, um, last week, one of his coworkers bought the book and she said, oh, I love the book. She said, but you won't believe it. My 97 year old mother is reading the book now and she loves it. And I am just like blown away. Like what? (laughs) And, and she even sent us pictures of her 97 year old mother holding up my book, reading it, like what is even happening? It has been a phenomenally wonderful experience, um, COVID notwithstanding.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear that. So as a wrap up, you know, we're looking towards 2022. Um, I think one of the messages you have for other writers out there is, you know, if it doesn't come together in a single year, that's fine maybe put it away for a while, come back, think about it, it's more. But uh, I'm gonna ask you, uh, for all our listeners who feel like they have a story inside them or they have a collection of pages that it's at the back of their closet, that they they wanna turn into something. Do you have a piece of advice or a few pieces of advice for them
1: Sure. So I guess, number one, don't do what I do. (laughs) Like, if you really do have this, don't put it away for seven years like I did. But, you know, as I look back on it, I think all books come in their time because I got my um, book contract um, right on the heels of this country having gone through you know, an administration that was fraught with, um, you know, political tension. We went through Black Lives Matter. We saw George Floyd murdered. So I think publishers were then taking note, like, yeah, maybe we need to, you know, help our readers understand these issues. And so, My book came at a time that um, I think publishers were really receptive to the kinds of issues and themes that this book covers. But other pieces of advice I would give to writers, um, because I think there used to be this joke like back in, you know, years ago when John Grisham was writing books, it's like, yeah, if you look at the you know, the the hard drive of every lawyer out there, they've got a book, you know, <laughs> stuck in their hard drive somewhere. But if that is you and you have this desire to create and to write stories, don't give up. First and foremost, keep reading, keep writing. I always say that, you know, good writing comes out of a lot of reading um, because when you read books, you um, you know what a good book looks like, you know what a bad book looks like. So keep reading, keep writing, but also um, keep the faith too, because writing is such a solitary endeavor and you spend all this time working on a project and you don't know where it will go. The publishing industry, man, is just a whole nother world, different and unto itself from like the legal industry. And it takes a lot of pluck and perseverance. And so don't let, you know, one or two obstacles or rejection stop you. Like I said, I got enough rejection to paper walls with. But if you believe in your writing that strongly, then keep at it. Keep at it. Well, Wanda, thank
0: you again. Listeners, this has been Wanda M. Morris. And we've been talking about her book, All Her Little Secrets. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you've been gripped by a book like I was gripped by all her little secrets, write to books
1: at abajournal.com and that book may turn up in a future episode.